today we are just going to um, have a one-off message, probably start a new series next week, Um, but I just wanted to bring you a one-off message from the book of Acts as we commence 2016. So please turn to Acts chapter 2, and um, we're going to read... Down, we're going to go down from verse 42. Um, you'll find it on page 1597 in the Brown Bibles in front of you. So do um, bring that up. A little bit of context. This is a day of Pentecost. It's just taken place. The birth of the church. Thousands of people have been witnessing something extraordinary happening among the Christians, uh, which began as a very small group. And in the passage that's just ended, Peter has just preached to a huge crowd. And he'd said things like this, looking up from verse 37, he'd, oh, verse 36, he's, he said, um, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made, this is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it says the people were cut to the heart And then looking down to verse 41, it says, Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this is very much the point at which the church gets off to a massive start, from 120 people to over 3,000 in a single day. And then... Luke, who's telling us the story of the early church, the very first chapter of their beginning, he writes this from verse 42. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved." Luke is giving us a snapshot, a window into the life of the early church. And any church, and indeed the church worldwide, is a living organism. And you can understand something of the health of a church based on what's happening in that living organism. When Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching through this, this passage, he, he, he said that life always expresses itself. And he's thinking about the examples we see all around us in normal day-to-day life, how um, living things, they give off carbon dioxide and heat. You guys, the very fact that you are alive in that chair means that your body is doing things even without you thinking and that life is expressing itself. You're you may not feel warm, but you are emitting heat, and you are, you are breathing. And these things are just the inevitable unfolding of the very fact that you are alive. So when we take a look at the early church at its very commencement, we can begin to see, we can kind of put our fingers on the pulse, as it were, and understand something of what the life looked like, what this, how this life gave expression. These things were not really intentional. Um, it was just what God was doing in their midst by virtue of the fact that they are alive. And for me, I think this passage has always stood out as probably one of the most important descriptions of 
of what God wants in his church, what the church of Jesus Christ ought to look like, what it ought to make you um, notice about itself when you look at a church from the outside in or understand what its life is comprised of. Now, before we sort of get into the substance of what this is and what it means for us, I just want to make one point before we get into it. Obviously, we're reading here from, um, from a story. The book of Acts is just is a story. And so the way we read a passage like this is going to be different from how we re- we've been reading passages in the Sermon on the Mount. And the difference is between description and prescription. So when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, it's very much prescription. This is, it's all pure teaching. Jesus telling us what the Christian life looks like and what he desires of us. When you read a story, a narrative like the book of Acts, and there's, much of the Bible is made up of stories, it works differently. We have to be a bit more discerning because not everything in there is prescription. Some of it is just describing what they did and and why they did it and how they did it. And you're not meant to necessarily emulate all of it. But obviously some of it we are meant to emulate. So we have to have this kind of discernment when we're going through a book like the book of Acts and understand its significance for us. So just to use a silly example, later in chapter 10 when Peter is found praying on the roof and he has this amazing vision. Some of that we're meant to understand as prescription, that God calls us to prayer, and that sometimes he speaks to us in prayer. And some of it's just description. It's not as though he's calling us all to pray on rooftops, or that he only speaks to you when you're on a roof. So when we, when we begin to look through a passage like this one, what we're wanting to do is dig in and understand, okay, if this is describing what a healthy, vibrant, passionate, wonderful church looks like, what are the principles that we can take? Because some of this is clearly not meant to be for us today. Like the fact that they go to temple to pray. We don't, there is no temple anymore. But some of it is meant for us as timeless principles. And I want to uncover this. And I think that nothing could be more important for us at the beginning of a new year than understanding exactly what it is that God wants to do in Grace London this year and in the years to come. Let's begin. I want to show you four things that I think are characteristic signs of life of this living church. Number one, that they are feeding on Christ. It begins with these words. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Even just in that word devoted, you catch something of the urgency and the intensity and the hunger and the passion that this early church had to know more about God and more about Jesus. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, it says. And I would say that because this is the very first thing that Luke writes down about them, I think it's probably also the most notable thing and the most important thing about this church, as, it, as he recalls it, if he was there or if he wasn't there, as it was told to him. So he's sit, sitting down to write a description. How can, I, how can I capture for my readers what it was like to be a part of this people at this time? The first thing that comes to his mind is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, you need to keep in mind, this is a church in the midst of revival. If you don't know what revival is, revival is something almost seemingly random, but it's, it's when God does a work inside a nation or a city or a church that's just totally out of the ordinary and totally unexplainable on human terms. This church had gone from 120 to 3,000 in a single day. And by any reckoning, that's an unusual thing to happen. It's a time of revival. All these people were getting saved. 
Now, when you and I talk about, and many of us pray for a revival, and we picture, what would it be like if God were to move in revival power among churches in London today? I wonder if the first thing you would imagine would be that the churches would become more devoted to doctrine. It's a weird thought, isn't it? Because I don't think that's how we would imagine revival. We tend to associate passion for doctrine with Christians who are somewhat rigid, narrow-minded, and a little bit mean as well. And here, that's the last thing you could say about these Christians. But the first thing you can say about them is their absolute devotion and passion to the teaching as it was being relayed to them by the apostles. Now, I want us to understand this because I think when we look around um, the situation of the church in Britain is I often comment on and just think about what is really generally quite a sad picture of decline and decline and decline across most of the main denominations and in most of the churches across this land. Of course, there are many important exceptions to that. But when you see so much decline, a lot of churches are desperate to see this trend reversed. They want to see new things happen. They want to see young people come in. They want to see families again in churches and they want to see growth. But sadly, a lot of people who desire these things have not read and understood what the Bible tells us about how that happens. And they assume that the last thing we need to give people is more doctrine. I think that when people are desperate to see new growth, they try anything and everything. New programs in church life, better production, more slickness, which clearly we haven't quite grasped here at Grace London. (laughs) But, you know, all those things, people think, well, if we just do this better and that better and that better, we're going to see God do great things. And sadly, what's lacking is a confidence in, in what God can do through the teaching, through what is called here the apostolic teaching. I'm passionate about this stuff. Let me. <laughs> I think that the reason for that is there is an assumption, a wrong, a totally wrong assumption that because so many people in the kind of millennial and postmodern generations are, you know, anti authority and anti truth, that the last thing they want to hear is more dogmatic truth. And so there's a, there's a feeling that we need to kind of put that stuff in the shadows and in the cupboard and maybe bring it out once or twice a year, but not, not major on that. And along with that, that there's a kind of a, a wrong assumption, I think, that the Word of God just can't do this kind of thing. But do you remember what, what the writer to the Hebrews says about, about God's Word? It says that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of bone and marrow. Only God's word, only the truth about Jesus Christ can affect this kind of powerful transformation in a church's life and bring about change in individuals as well. The very thing that we're neglecting is the very thing that we need in Britain today and which we want to put front and center in a church like ours. These people were feeding on Christ. That was the most important thing about them. Now think then about why this church is so healthy, so alive, so incredible. And I'm telling you that it has to do with this absolute devotion and focus upon God's word being taught through the apostles. But let's put it out of our minds again. Any idea that what is being described here is a kind of narrow-minded, sort of um, 
you know, like systematic, theological, kind of dry, um, dusty approach to the teaching. You've got to understand that this is the apostles' teaching. And the apostles were men who just spent three years walking around, following a man who they were now totally obsessed with. So if you ask yourself, well, what was the content of their teaching? Sure, it contained all, I'm sure it had a lot of variety and a lot of, um, sort of, all the scriptures were brought to bear. But listen, it was always about a person. They were not just interested in defining terms and using complicated words. The apostles were just talking about Jesus all the time. And the people were at their feet, as it were, drinking, sucking in, feeding on the marrow, wanting to know more about this man, Jesus, who, for some reason, they had overlooked or missed for the past few years of his ministry. It was all around a person and not just around the person but also around what Jesus did you notice how it says in this verse that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread this is the breaking of bread it's communion we didn't have any bread when we arrived Eugene's got us some bread we now have bread which means that we can celebrate communion praise God The reason we celebrate communion is because we're wanting not only to talk about Jesus, but to talk about what Jesus has done for us upon the cross. And this early church was full of life and full of health because they never lost sight of the broken body of Jesus upon the cross. Everything was focused upon and centered around the gospel. When churches put Jesus front and center again, And what he's done for us in dying for us in our place for our sins upon the cross. That you can be forgiven and that you can have new life. That you can have all your guilt brushed aside and taken away and put into the deepest parts of the ocean. When that is what we feed upon, new life begins to grow. Unstoppable life begins to grow in the church. All of our guilt is washed away. All of our judgmentalism and hypocrisy begins to dissolve and melt away. And instead, we begin to experience the kind of love that Christ demonstrated for us when he poured out his life for us. And we begin to have that love back towards him and towards one another. The gospel is the only thing that can do this in churches. Which is why we unashamedly, repeatedly, and consistently want to keep coming back. It's all about Jesus. It's all about feeding on Christ. When you think, what is the formula for God's blessing upon churches? It really is as simple as that. Put Christ center and health and life and vitality begins to pulsate through the entire body of the church. And I want to just challenge you on this. I want us to ask ourselves, is this going to be true of us in this coming year? That we're a people who, if you could say one thing about us, the first thing you say about us would be this. They devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching, which is here in the scriptures. Is it going to be true of you coming into this new year? I always think the new year is the best time to say again to God, I want to commit myself to learning about you in the study of your word. Have you done that? Have you made a decision about that? 
Friends, if, if you need help, we're here to help. I'm here. I would love to talk with you. But let's be people who feed on Christ before anything else is true of us. Secondly, not only was this church emitting a sign of life of being people who wanted to feed, it was also had this second one, that they were nurtured with love in the community. Now Luke uses a word here, again in this first verse. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching and the fellowship. You say, what is fellowship? Nobody uses the word fellowship except in churches these days. Fellowship, very simply, just means sharing. And at a very base level, it just has to do with the sharing of life with one another in community. It means um, friendship, marriage, household. It was a word that just captured the idea of people living for and with one another in, in the normal ways that we understand community life to be. But when the New Testament uses the word fellowship, I think it captures, and I put it to you, that it captures another dimension here. Paul talks about, at the end of 2 Corinthians, he talks about the fellowship of the Spirit, or of the Holy Spirit. Which means that there is a kind of fellowship that exists within the church, which is not explainable on any human terms, and can only be understood when you factor in that the work, there's a work of God going on amongst these people. You cannot look at a church and think, you should not be able to look at a church and explain the friendships and the love and the community that's going on in that, in that, community, in that church purely on natural terms, that the people are all alike, that they all have very similar backgrounds, that they're similar ages. And unfortunately... In our early days, maybe that can be said of us, and it shouldn't be. When you look at a church, you should be able to see something going on that only God can bring about. More diversity than would be possible in a community outside of the church. More love and self-sacrifice and selflessness. It has to be a thing of God. It has to be something supernatural. And that's what we're seeing going on in the book of Acts here. They devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching and the fellowship. And you begin to look through this passage and you see, well, what did it look like for them? It looked like things like this. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And don't make any mistake here. He's talking about their homes, their couches, their food, their water. He's talking about the normal stuff of life. They had it all in common. This is a slightly radical situation going on here. It says they were, they were selling their possessions. So they were selling the spare stuff that they had on the shelf, those old books and you know, the, their extra jars and taking them to the market to cash it in so that they could then distribute the cash amongst people in the church who were poor. When you've read, I'm sure many of you have, you read the Old Testament, you've read the story of Israel before the church began. God intended to, to to create a people who had this kind of fellowship among them. A people where the poorest among them were taken care of by the wealthiest. But unfortunately, when you read through the Bible, what you see is it's the same thing that we see in our society today. That increasing distance between the rich and the poor and increasing oppression from the rich over the poor so that the, the poor are held down in a cycle, a vicious cycle of poverty and injustice and brokenness. 
And then when God begins to move in his church in a fresh way, suddenly all of that is turned on its head. And no person could belong to the the early church and not feel that their needs were taken care of in the very basic day-to-day ways. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Well, what is the church meant to look like in this day and age? Are we meant to emulate this? Are we meant to look exactly like this? And I don't want to sort of explain away a passage like this. Neither do I think that this, you know, I I began by talking to you about the difference between description and prescription. I don't think this is prescriptive because you'll never read anywhere else in the Bible that says that we have to sell everything and just share it all. The Bible very much teaches that you can have personal property because that's what makes you responsible for it. It's what gives you the opportunity for generosity. However, neither do we want to take out the force of what it's saying here. That when a person saw need in another, they wanted to do everything in their power to touch that need because the love of God had transformed their heart, that they were no longer self-oriented, they were selfless. This is why when Paul addresses rich people in 1 Timothy 6, he tells them to share with those who don't have. Now, I wonder how you're meant to take this then and apply it to our situation. If we're going to dig into what the principle is here, I think it's this. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. The thing that Luke wants us to notice, I don't think is so much about their possessions. It's about the motivation that underlay this action. The passionate, committed, fervent love they had towards one another. And so when you take that and, and, then, and then apply it to our own situation here in London today, what, what would that look like if a church embodied this? I'm not sure that it, it's a call for us to go and form a kibbutz and start farming together and sharing everything and doing communal meals and everything like that. I'm not sure that that's what's intended. It's rather that we look, well, what's the greatest need that we we see in one another. It may not be material needs, so I'm sure that there are those of us who experience that. The greatest need to my mind when you look at a city like London and the people in it is the need for love and friendship. For relationships that are deeper than just your superficial hello. You know that the, the, the cases of what is described as mental illness are always increasing in modern society because of the fracture and the breakdown of families and all the fallout that comes from divorce and rejection and all the fragmentation of society, how people who are meant to be looked after within community because we are not men to be lone individuals. Their hearts are, are empty because they don't experience or give the love that we are called to give. So when I look, well, what's the deepest poverty that I can see in London? It's, it's the death of wholesome, deep, meaningful, significant relationships. Friends, I'm not saying that's the only way that you have to take and apply this, but I think it's probably the most important way for us as Grace London to think, well, what would it mean? What would it look like for us to embody this fellowship? It would be a passionate commitment to one another in love. 
Is it true of us? Is it true of you? Do you think to yourself, when you wake up to come to church or to life group, or when you're flicking through your contact list on your phone, do you think, how can I love and bless my brothers and sisters in Christ this week more than I did last week? How can I pray for them? Who can I reach out to? Who can I encourage? This kind of fellowship is not just something that happens automatically outside of you. It's what you do to the community and then receive from the community. It has to lay upon your shoulders. We all must be responsible for this. It says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They made a passionate decision, a commitment. I'm going to give myself to this church and its people. Let me tell you a third thing, a third sign of life that Luke noticed and shows us. And I want to put it like this. The church was characterized by regularity and rhythms. What do I mean? Well, you know that every living creature has certain rhythms that characterize its life, whether it's your breathing, in, out, in, out, in, out, all day long, every day, until you die. The beating of your heart, eating three times a day, or five times a day if you're Malaysian, and sleeping every day, These rhythms that just characterize life, you almost forget about them because they're so normal. Do you see how when Luke's describing what the church looked like, he says in verse 46, he says, And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. In other words, here's Luke describing a church in the midst of crazy unforgettable revival. And what he wants us to notice is that every day they worshipped and ate. Worshipped and ate. Worshipped and ate. I find that amazing and striking just how ordinary that is. And this is something that I think for us as charismatics, as people with, you know, who pray for and yearn for God to do uh, great things in our time, we sing about greater things are yet to come in the city. Amen. God, do it. Our danger is always to have our eye fixed on the unusual, the extraordinary, and to forget that God works in the day-to-day rhythms of normal Christian life and worship. There's a book that came out, I think it was last year, by Michael Michael Horton called Ordinary. He's lamenting this. He's describing how, you know, a lot of Christians, we, we, we yearn for the, the extraordinary sort of, we, they call it revivalism in the United States. This kind of wanting to see people whipped up into such a frenzy that um, they have some kind of, dynamic, powerful experience of God and people hunger for it and people drive from city to city or fly from city to city to experience, well, where's this happening? Where are the amazing things happening in church life? And people also try and engineer it through various techniques to getting the right kind of speaker, the right kind of worship, the right kind of lighting, the right kind of crowd. And, and it's a very deliberate, mechanical thing that's done. You can read all about it. You can see it. It's all over the internet. And he writes this, this has been the vicious cycle of evangelical revivalism, a pendulum swinging between enthusiasm, 
where people get all excited and whipped up and, and passionate, all the way through to disillusionment. Rather than, he writes, steady maturity in Christ through participation in the ordinary life of the covenant community. This was a time of amazing revival. I mean, you would give your left arm to go and see what it was like then, wouldn't you? And, and just there and experience what the church felt like. But one of the things that would have struck you if you'd stayed with one of the families in the church was just how every day they just kept doing the same things. Just normal Christian things. Oh, we're just, what are we doing today? Oh, we're going to go to temple today and worship. Well, like yesterday, yeah, and the day before. Oh, what are we doing tomorrow? Oh, we're going to go to temple and worship. And then what after? Well, we're going to gather with some other Christians and we're going to eat. We like eating. And so every day, they go to temple and worship, and then they come home and they eat. And they get some new Christians around into their house and they eat together. Worship and eat. Worship and eat. Worship and eat. And somehow in the midst of the ordinary rhythms of church life, Lives are changing. People are experiencing fresh grace every day. Sins that have badgered them for years are being dealt with and overcome. Broken relationships are being fixed. Maturity is being experienced as people hear just nuggets of teaching, wisdom around the dinner table. What did you hear what Peter taught us today at Temple today? Wasn't that amazing? Do you hear what Andrew said at Grace? Wasn't that just. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Ordinary rhythms of church life. Marco referenced our New Year thing in his prayer earlier. How, you know, we all start the New Year with a bang, don't we? They, they say, I don't know which date, there's like a date in, in January when statistically everyone stops going to the gym. It's around the 20 something of January. <laughs> Because it's like a massive spurt of energy followed by nothing for the rest of the year until 2017 comes along. And every one of us identifies with this. I bet you guys have got off to a fantastic start on your reading plans, your Bible reading plans, some of you, not the lazy ones. And, uh, <laughs> and then by, you know, by January the 6th, you're, you've already skipped a day and then you give up. I think that what's needed in, in church is often just an appreciation that much as with health, you know, to be a healthy person, healthy person, healthy person, you, you just need to <laughs> do the normal stuff day after day well. You just have to reduce what you eat and do a little bit of activity and then do the same again tomorrow and the day after and the day after and not think that if you go to the gym once a month and and bust a gut for three hours pumping iron, that you're going to be healthy, because you won't be. And the, the picture between, you know, that faddishness and then those just steady, consistent rhythms is a wonderful picture of what makes churches healthy. There, you, there are loads of churches where you can go where people just are ex- wanting to experience the higher high. And then they crash during the week, or they crash for months, or they crash for years in disillusionment. And then you can go to churches where you'll meet an old lady who's been 
worshipping day after day and gathering faithfully Sundays and then Monday for prayer meeting and then Wednesday for Bible study and then Friday for giving up food on the street and she's been doing it year after year after year after year. And the result is that she's more like Jesus than anyone you've ever met. And I think that whilst we hunger and long for God to do revival amidst, amongst us, we want to see people getting saved. We want to see people flooding into the churches of London, at least the churches that love Jesus, because they don't all. But let's say we want to see people getting saved in good churches. We also just want to do the basics really well. And friends, I know that doesn't sound like a huge vision for 2016. <laughs> What are we going to do this year? Well, we're going to have church every Sunday and we're going to have life groups in midweek. But my, I, I believe that that is how God works. Through doing the basics really well. And that we shouldn't expect all the time that lives are just going to be tran- uh, you know, transformed overnight through dynamic preaching and wonderful worship and the, the crowd elated and every hands in the air. I think that transformation happens through the drip feed of grace as we gather, as we have conversation after conversation, as we are faithful and committed to one another. And so when you, if you were to look ahead a year, 10 years, in many ways success would be quite an unextraordinary thing. It would just be more of the same tracked out over time. And that is something to work towards, to give your life to, because it's in that that you experience health and wonderful things happening. And you know, I look back on the grace that's been at work. You know, I don't, I don't, in my own family, and just think, you know, it's not like I can look back at, at one-off moments necessarily over the decades when God did you know the massive stuff that has happened but I just look back at how consistent my dad was at just modeling and teaching about Jesus just the ordinary stuff and how that then has had a drip feed effect on us as sons and how we have good marriages and now we want to raise our kids in the faith and friends this is just what God desires covenant families covenant community I think I've made my point. I suppose the implication for you though, for us, is just that you will decide to master the basics. Let me move on. The last thing I notice about this church, one of the great signs of life, evidences of God's grace and of power at work in the church was that they were growing. And you see it in the last verse. Luke's just told us that day day by day they were worshipping and breaking bread. And then he says they were praising God and having favour with all the people. And he closes with this. He says, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Growth in church is a wonderful thing. A good thing. A God-given thing. But I think Rick Warren was right when he writes, was written about church growth. And he said this, that healthy things grow. And you have to understand that growth is in many ways the byproduct of health, not the other way around. 
the, the important implication for us as a church is that we're not called necessarily to pursue growth. We're called to pursue health and then let, let God bring the growth. That's what we see happening here. You look through this passage, you meditate on all the things that Luke's telling you, imagine it in your head, what was happening in this church. And all he's describing is a picture of vitality and health, a vibrant, vigorous church life. And then it's almost like, oh, and they were growing as well, by the way. Every day, in fact, they just kept growing. And these people, it wasn't even like they were trying to grow. They just happened. I think this is so important for us to keep in mind because I think one of the great weaknesses of the modern Western evangelical church, and it is a very modern phenomena, and it is a very Western phenomena, and it is a very evangelical phenomena, is the obsession with church growth, where it becomes the be-all and end-all and focus of everything you do. But I believe that it leads to many distortions and weaknesses in church life, and I just want to give you some examples of that. Whilst I think it can be well-motivated, passion for souls, a desire for people to get saved and join the community, amen. But it does things like this. It means you start measuring your church's success or health based on size and numbers. But since when have we ever understood that something's good and healthy just because there are lots of people engaged in it? You can find lots of people that take that concert. It doesn't mean it's a very good place to be or particularly spiritually you know, full of vibrancy and vitality. You begin to only measure your worth and your sense of whether we're doing it well based on whether we're growing quickly or not. I think it's very misguided. You start making church into a consumer product to get the punters in. In many ways, I think the obsession with church growth is just the the church mirroring the consumerism that's arisen in Western society. We want more, we want it faster, we want it better, we want it newer, and we want it now. And then the church responds with, well, we want to offer you something more, something faster, something newer, something better. We're going to offer you now. Come and join us. We've tailored everything to your felt needs. You're going to feel great if you join us. And friends, that's not the church that I see in the New Testament. I see a church that doesn't focus on people as consumers, but focuses on people as sinners in need of repentance before a holy God, but who can taste the grace of God if they will but come and worship and kiss the Son. Let our focus not be on things that distort how we do church and what we understand to be a healthy church. Another thing is you start getting your highs and lows based on numbers. This was a great week because we had five more people. This was a terrible week because half our people were away. Where are all our people? And then you also start making everything about outreach to the detriment of the community and and what God is doing to disciple people and grow people. So it's all about gathering and nothing's happening to the people who've gathered. They're just festering in their sin and their brokenness. And just to reference the last point we made, you stop seeing the good in the ordinary. You know, Jesus is always assessing churches. I know it because when I read the book of Revelation, the first sort of three chapters are describing how Jesus assesses churches. He writes letters to seven churches and he tells them what he likes and what he dislikes. 
Not once in any of those letters does he ever reference how big those churches are. In fact, apart from these couple of notes at the beginning of the book of Acts, when you read on through your New Testament, it's never mentioned ever again. What they are interested in and what Jesus is interested in is the health, the godliness, the grace that's at work in the people, the passionate commitment to holiness and to Jesus and non-compromise in their engagement with the world. These are the kinds of things that Jesus cares about. And I think you can find those things in giant churches, mega churches, and I think you can find those things in forgotten village churches with only three people who gather every week. And I think Jesus can be just as pleased with either of them. And it ought to be our desire that he be pleased with us because our hunger is to be a healthy, healthy church. And then may God in his grace do what he did in them by adding to our numbers day by day those who are being saved. We want to pursue the kind of church life that that Luke's describing here, that the New Testament is all about which, if I could sum it up, is a ferocious commitment to Jesus and a ferocious commitment to one another. Love that is untamable and aggressive and passionate. And then, by God's grace, he'll do what he did here. Remember, this is God's work, not ours. So if we think we've produced it, then clearly it wasn't God in the first place because what it says here is, the Lord added to their number day by day. This is why the most important thing we can be engaged in is prayer. I want to close by doing just that. I want us to pray. And can I invite you all to stand as we pray together? Father God, I want to thank you so much that it is your passionate desire and commitment to the church, which is the bride of Christ, that she be something beautiful, radiant, attractive, wonderful, and world-changing. And we pray, Lord God, that in our small corner of this planet, you would be doing a work of grace that can only be understood as a work of the Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.